welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Emmeline Friedman, independent psychosocial researcher, author, and digital data activist. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Janice Hawkins. Dr. Hawkin is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Portland State University, a clinical psychologist and documentary filmmaker. In addition to her work as professor at Portland State University, Hawkin has taught as a Fulbright Scholar at Durham University in the UK, University of College Cork in Ireland, and as a visiting professor at the London School of Economics, York University, and University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Jam's documentaries focus on people and places on the social margins, drawing out their insights on the world around them. She has received numerous awards for her filmmaking, most recently the Lena Sharp Persistence of Vision Award at the 2019 Seattle International Film Festival. Hawkin publishes extensively in the fields of psychoanalysis and feminism, the history and politics of diagnosis, trauma, culture, and memory, and the dynamics of storytelling. Her new book is called Psychiatry, Politics, and PTSD, Breaking Down which we'll talk about some today. So Jan, your journey has spanned so many topics in psychology and society. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you come to this work? Thank you so much for having me um, on Madden America in this uh, podcast. And I'm, um, I'm a big fan of the larger project of Madden America. And a couple of my films have been part of the Madden America festivals and screenings over the years. Um, but my work um, as a psychologist uh, followed my early career as a psychiatric nurse. I was a nurse and then worked in child psychiatry in the late 60s and early 70s at, in the, um, at the University of Washington Child Psychiatry Clinic, a time when, um, when psychoanalysis was very much the, the leading ruling um, discipline within departments of psychiatry. So many of my mentors were psychoanalysts whom I respected enormously and were very formative in some of my thinking about clinical work. At the same time, there was a, a movement that I became part of the anti-psychiatry movement as it was called, which included you know, nurses, doctors, residents, and people working in, um, in hospital facilities who were rebelling against the whole medical model and the project of institutionalization um, and as a civil rights campaign. So I, I was very much in this creative con, uh, confluence or cross-currents of, of psychoanalytic thought that remained very important to me. I am a psychoanalytic um, clinician and social theorist. Um, and at the same time, from the very start, I was kind of nurtured in this world of critique, the, this mix of ideas that became very much part of the broader critical psychology project and, and the social movements of that period, the anti-war movement, you know, the feminist movement, the civil rights and deinstitutionalization movements, the sexual revolution. And it, it, it was formative for me in that conflict and struggle were um, an impetus for change and growth. And there was a lot of interest in 
the ways in which our distress, our struggles were, could propel us forward. And that, I think, became part of my critique of an excessive use of trauma and the trauma paradigm a few decades later to frame states of distress that seem to move too much toward pathologizing. So at any rate, those were very uh, formative years for me. And after um, my early career as a nurse, I went to graduate school in uh, an institute that was um, very much influenced by uh, the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, um, psychoanalysis, Marxism, and interdisciplinary inquiry. And so I was trained as a clinical psychologist, came to Portland State and was hired um, on the faculty and kind of an odd document in an experimental behavioral department, um, but and have enduring affection for my colleagues take, taking me in there because I was so different and departed from the main prevailing paradigms. But that that's another story. But I, I had a kind of different um, career trajectory because I came out of kind of a working class uh, trade in nursing and then moved into academia and was very involved in the women's health movement during that time and its critique of psychiatric diagnoses. Um, some of my earliest papers were on also folk diagnoses. I became really interested in concepts like codependence and love addiction that were taken up and kind of valorized by feminists and kind of unpacking those diagnoses where those folk diagnoses helpful or not um, in advancing women's grievances, also taking on diagnoses in the personality disorder and um, neurotic anxiety disorders um, areas of the DSM project and, and looking at some of their history. So a lot of my follow the history of diagnoses as it relates to um, theoretical and applied issues in feminism. Yeah, so it sounds like you're really a liaison between the currency of mental health diagnosis and critical and activist movements elsewhere. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I, I think in, in the larger critical theory field, there's... Um, and this includes the, a lot of the theory in psychoanalytic feminism, psychoanalytic feminist film analysis that I've followed in my work. You get this really hyper abstract <laughs> remote theory, and then you get these very practical projects that you see more community psychology where people are on the ground and the theory is pretty thin. Um, and <laughs> A pretty pragmatic. Um, the 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 conceptual grounding of projects is pretty pragmatic and limited. So I've been really interested in in this um, navigating between kind of the high theory and the more you know theory on the streets, pra the praxis that comes out of social movements, and you know, in in clinical work where I was trained and uh, and was active for years there, we would have case studies that were extremely um, extensive and detailed review of case notes and interpretations. And I tried to take some of that methodology into my film work and social movements that um, 
I still feel there's too little reflection or analysis of problems that emerge in social change, in particular radical social movements. You know, how do, how do we learn from, you know, a, a demonstration? Um, how do we learn from these coalitions we're forming now? And I've been involved in here in Portland. Um, rather than just, um, you know, calling for things that are important and mourning our defeats, celebrating our victories, how do we learn in a deep way from social change work. So that's kind of where my heart is and has been for a long time is bringing psychoanalytic feminist theory and critical theory into um, the disturbances and pathologies of social change, as well as the, the health and resilience of social movements. Huh. So in a lot of ways, you bring sort of a critical psychological lens maybe to debriefing or unpacking social movements with the people involved in them? Yes. And, um, and so one example, I, one of my early films is called Guilty Except for Insanity, set at the Oregon State Hospital, the site famous for where the uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest was shot. And we were able to get, get clips from that film for free to use in, in uh, that documentary. And it, it came out of my own interest in my students' work on the deinstitutionalization de movement and the, um, the issue of over-pathologizing um, and confining people in the, in semi, you know, in, in conditions that are very much like prisons and use overuse of the jails. So, um, you know, I, uh, we approached that documentary, though, of how people, why it's so hard to get into that hospital and why it's so hard to get out were the questions that guided that project, as well as the intersection between the criminal justice system, the prison system, and the state hospital system. You know, that particular juncture of institutional and and rules that govern madness who's who's mentally ill who's mad and who's just bad you know and so i there had been a practice in the field of psychopathology to kind of bring out someone with this diagnosis of schizophrenia and interview them and bring out someone who's bipolar and i wanted to more deeply understand how Patients who enter that hospital themselves thought about their diagnosis, whether it was correct, and their analysis of the institution and conditions of their confinement, as well as the staff. So it, it became a, it, its own kind of exploration of kind of states of subjectivity that are conditioned by institutionalization, but um, moving into a place where patients themselves were part of the stage and, and talking about the film later, join me on, in um, discussions at community events and film festival events. And, and that was part of, I think, the, the project of critical psychiatry and the anti-psychiatry movement was listening to madness and that people who have different states of mind and consciousness of things to say and contribute beyond just trotting them out as a case study. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me that across your work, this has sort of, this approach has had the effect of really bringing out 
the full ambivalence of a lot of the features of the psi complex, right? So the fact that diagnosis in a lot of in a lot of senses is kind of like a crucial access point or an important discourse that can be, you know, retooled in service of social movements. Um, but of course, also highly stigmatizing as the, as, as the, as the critique goes. So I'm curious what it is that you think it is about your, your approach that nullifies that kind of standard retort to mental health critics, right? That like discon that deconstructing some of these features somehow disrespects those suffering with mental health issues. That, that's been a, a, a debate and that was very important in the, in the early anti-psychiatry movement, as it was called, or um, critical psychiatry movement, um, radical psychiatry. I mean, these terms overlap but have their own, um, their own histories. But, um, you know, when you're, when you're a practicing clinician, as many of us were and are, I, I think there, there is, there is a, there are forms of suffering that do involve claims for, claims for care. Peter Sedgwick was an important influence on my own work. He was part of the uh, anti-psychiatry movement who was sympathetic with its aims around deinstitutionalization, around patients' rights, and challenging the tyranny of diagnosis and overpathologizing people. But at the same time, he said, you know, it, it's important to understand what it's like from the hard bench of a waiting room for a patient who's trying to seek care. And this is one portal of entry people have is through a diagnosis. And certainly the medical model of which I'm a, um, I'm a critic, but it's better than many of the religious models that preceded it. You know, the, the AA move to define alcoholism as a disease was an enormous advance over alcoholism as a moral failure, a form of degeneracy. And for a long time, the American Psychiatric Association fought AA on that. And did classify it under associated with personality disorders, and 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 still there is there is much of that around addiction that lingers as a kind of defect, a character defect. So yeah. I think the medical model has was an advance, and to bring in diagnoses that kind of that reframe issues that are so morally loaded as health problems, as public health problems, is an unequivocal advance. At the same time, these are also limited categories that have their own traps. And we can talk more about that. And diagnoses, once they work their way into the diagnostic and statistical manual and the whole bureaucracy of the medical establishment and its management strategies, often you have a very confined space uh, focused on symptom management that um, doesn't deliver very much to people. I think people with serious mental forms of mental illness today are in very bad shape in our system, even with the successes of destigmatization campaigns. Yeah, yeah, because even destigmatization does not really eliminate a lot of the institutional knock-on effects, you know, like the iatrogenic effects of just being sort of tossed around the system. 
Uh, that is so true. And how people are um, traumatized by the institutions that where they that are assigned with their care or confinement. And, you know, I think a, a lot of the um, now there's more calls for mental health services as part of the pandemic. Um, and we have various alarms being set off around the mental health effects of the pandemic on children's school closures and so on. But often the, the way this gets framed is in terms of access to professional mental health services. And, you know, yet we've, we've learned a lot over the decades about good practices for mental health, like eliminating poverty, providing basic food and shelter for people. Um, also, I think part of the the anti-psychiatry, the radical psychiatry movement that that remained formative for me and I feel is so important is that the the movement, a progressive mental health movement has to demand something of the larger public and not just, you know, um, spiriting people away to places or, or directing them to services. We have to, as a broader society, have a greater respect and, um, and not call the police, you know, when someone is acting odd. Um, so there's a whole set of issues that were part of that movement and the deinstitutionalization movement that, that required something of the larger society, not just getting people into treatment um, under the authority of mental health professionals, but, but, you know, demanding something of all of us as a society. You know, I keep thinking about this, and I know you'll have a lot to say here, is that, you know, the, the brand of anti-psychiatry that, that you're talking about that really took off in the late 60s, I feel like it contributed so much to the left movements at the time. You know, like it wasn't afraid to make these claims about imperialism, colonialism, and industrial capitalism. And then, and then now today, you have popular movements like the Black Lives Matter movements, which is basically calling for mental health professionals, in some circumstances at least, to to replace police officers um, in their in their social duties, right? Like as first responders. So I'm interested in this switch and I'm curious what you think has changed in terms of how, um, you know, how the critical psychology movement interfaces with popular movements today. Yes. And that's, that's a, a historical um, trajectory I, I've taken up in my, my new book on psychiatry, politics and PTSD, as well as in other work. But the, um, I think in terms of the place of what some call major mental illness, uh, the schizophrenias and, and psychoses in the context of the radical psychiatry movement, there was a very much a romanticizing of madness too, where, you know, the person diagnosed with schizophrenia is seen as a kind of folk hero, um, you know, a, a poet speaking to the madness of the social order, you know, King of Hearts, one of my favorite films, it was very much that, that text of, you know, reversing who's crazy and who's mad, the madness of war. There were a lot of films that cast the, the, the mentally ill is the 
the ones that really had their ear to the ground and speaking to broader madness. And then, of course, by the the 70s, the medicalization of madness and the move towards um, uh, pharmaceutical treatment meant, you know, that people were only listening to to someone with schizophrenia long enough to put them on meds. You know, there was very little in the in the way interest in what people were saying with um, who who were psychotic or odd in some way in how they communicated. But I think what we're living in now is a time when, you know, neoliberalism had profound impacts on public services, on basically gutting many public health and social welfare services, privatizing a great deal of of what had been um, public or government uh, responsibilities. So, so much weight falling on individuals to take care of themselves and pathologizing of dependency and people who are cast as dependent um, throughout the Reagan eras and through up until the time we're in now, um, this period of advanced capitalism with the reliance on markets and privatizing everything has had a, had a, one effect was that the claims around mental health becoming became increasingly framed as a as a trauma narrative, mm-hmm. and I don't know if we could maybe go into that what what you gain <laughs> and what you lose when you frame your distress as a trauma through the lens of a trauma diagnosis. My own feeling is that the mental health field has not been a very interesting place for radicalism, radical ideas. Maybe beyond, you know, during the Occupy movement, there was some interesting activity as as these camps in different places of Occupy became places for taking care of people who lived on the streets with mental disorders. And you had a sense of community and care that formed there. There was a glimpse of that. But I don't see much that's very interesting in the mental health field for a long time as it relates to social movements. Yeah, I certainly agree. And, you know, I remember with Occupy, um, there was a sticking point, which was that, you know, when everyone got together in these camps, brief as it was, you know, I think there are still lessons coming from it. But, you know, brief as it was, it was sort of like this glimpse of what sort of social and cultural functioning would enable, you know, you got a glimpse into like the disappearance of putting um, psychological care aside as this sort of separate domain of life, right? Like people really got a glimpse of what, you know, how to be together in such a way that some of these services, you know, these privatized services wouldn't be quite as necessary. So there's almost, as I saw it, there was almost like a a sense of like, wow, you know, like all of these things are, all of these now privatized services are almost like necessary in light of the fact that, that we live in such a way um, where, you know, caring for each other directly or, you know, doing the emotional labor of being together, um, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't really happening. Yes. And I think that 
um, that period of the Occupy movement, it, it it would be good to revisit that as a case study and community mental health and and what it means to rely so heavily on professional mental health professionals. And I've been one. I, I do not disparage mental health services per se, but I do think as part of the critical psychology project, we are, even as practitioners, interested in looking at how our work becomes part of an ideological, a larger ideological edifice for, for a capitalist society, where everything becomes privatized, where suffering becomes um, managed through professionals and, and shunted aside. And with, uh, with that, uh, with Occupy Movement, as, as part of the, the history of community mental health, I think we saw also looking at practices where people communicate, um, making time and space for neurodivergent people mm-hmm. or people who are processing reality in different ways. And there was a tone of, I don't want to over-romanticize that period because there were a lot of troubles, but there was, I think, a shared respect for people who have, who both have been traumatized and people who are different through various pathways in life and making space for them in the group. And, and that there was a, an ethical shared commitment to creating space for people who are by some criteria different. Yeah. And that space in my view is so much more respectful than the romanticization of, of the, of the madness of the schizophrenia of the seventies, maybe Um, because it wasn't, you know, being embedded in a collective movement that's, you know, making demands for social change. It's like, um, the stories are helping the cause rather than being standalone demonstrations of, of how messed up everything is. Yeah, I, I think different periods of history of social movements bring different insights and ideas as well as open up possibilities. Like, um, you know, the project in Britain with R.D. Lang and the, the, ho- the hospitals that flourished as kind of experimental social settings in Britain in the 60s and 70s. I mean, by a few decades later, a lot of that was considered quite ludicrous and was delegitimized, like Arnie Lang saying, well, that someone with catatonic schizophrenia, which was fairly not uncommon diagnosis then, would, when they have something to say, they will speak. Or when I was treating, working with autistic children at the University of Washington, you know, you, if you had to wait two years for a hello, well, you waited two years. <laughs> I was never patient enough to work with autistic children. I tended to work with the more aggressive ones that were more active. But the, there was something to that stance of patiently waiting for, but, you, you know, I was also later considered as completely romantic and misguided. And because there are other things operating for people other than creating a safe space for them, you know, to speak. So I think the Occupy movement wasn't burdened by those practices. And 
And many people knew that there, there are people with forms of mental illness that have to be recognized their own terms, but also have things to contribute to the community and deserve the same respect as anyone else in a group. Yeah, absolutely. It really coincides with, you know, the direct democracy efforts of that time. You know, like, um, I think that frame kind of gave people pause about, okay, what, in what ways can we make space for people such that we can be living out our ideals of, you know, of, of collectivizing all these voices? Yeah. I mean, you had also asked about the, the role of, um, the, the role of critical psychiatry or, um, or community mental health practices in the movement for Black Lives over the last year. And as the professions run primarily by white people are, many people are struggling with the history of racism and white supremacy in our own professions. Um, you know, how, how do we draw on these histories to address difficult, difficult questions and, and the, how we're called upon to do more than just include a week on multiculturalism in our classes or CE credits, you know, four credits at the APA convention in your multiculturalism <laughs> courses. Um, yeah. And, and not, it's not a bad thing, but of course it has the obvious problem of, of, co- of serving to rationalize and the, the system in this perverse way, you know, in, in assim- assimilating and integrating into basically an unchanged set of paradigms, the claims of marginalized groups. That assimilation is, it's really common and it's really difficult because, you know, as an activist, it's hard to say, hey, stop, you know, like what looks like progress, that's not actually a win, you know, because it, it kind of doesn't go far enough. I draw on, in my own activism, I've been part of a, a group, a coalition here in Portland began as Defend Democracy. We all came out of activist backgrounds, supporting the Black Lives Matter protests here. And as a multiracial coalition, putting on events, including Inaugurate Justice last week, a rally in March here. And, you know, they're always, and with my documentaries, I'm also working with BIPOC communities and they're, it's very difficult coming out, you know, I'm a white petty bourgeois professional, older woman coming out of a particular um, background of privilege and how, how to acknowledge that, but still you have to have authentic relationships and really and not simply be there um, and consider your guilt and discomfort some kind of gift to the movement because you're right. you're there and going to, and going to kind of subjugate yourself in a masochistic way to be beat up on. I mean, you have so I think for for me, I draw on my and try to bring psychoanalytic ideas into that work by saying, you know. We, there is a collective transference we bring to social movements where we all bring our blind spots and histories of, of hopes, desires, but also trauma and suffering. And we, 
kind of reenact those in various ways in our groups together. And I think for me, it's been about the practice of being silent and kind of containing and internally processing the tensions in those group settings that can be very intense. And the more hope and possibility, the more prone the group is to disappointment and scapegoating, demoralization, where someone becomes the bad guy. I mean, it's, you know, if you can't take the heat, you should not be in those kitchens. And I'm, I'm drawn to those kitchens, but it, it takes a lot of emotional maturity in a certain way to weather this. I think this has happened with the Me Too movement and um, many social movements that I've been part of throughout my career. And so that's where I'm trying to contribute most mm-hmm. in my um, in my work is to drawing out and not pathologizing movements, but rather, you know, conflict and disturbances can be a um, an impetus for change and and for distinctive insights. But also groups can fall apart over their disturbances. I think the emphasis that you put on internal processing and emotional maturity is really a strong message that, you know, that, that needs to be heard because the dominant paradigm basically, you know, with, with social media influencing and and this sort of stuff is, you know, if you have a gut reaction, air it, you know, and of course that just doesn't work when you're, when you're involved in these kitchens, right? And as more, I mean, the, you know, the social, social media obviously has, has been identified as a pathogenic vehicle that we're supposed to find a way to personally inoculate ourselves from no vaccines coming. (laughs) But um, I think the, the technologies themselves are, have amplified those effects, but I also think that there is there are ways in which groups can address some of these dynamics, like the tendency when people are upset to scapegoat a particular person or to fixate on an issue or to lash out um, and or the benefit of kind of sitting with some tension you feel and trying to say, well, what you know, what's triggering this now for me? Um, why? And to not assume that because you have a, a trigger that somebody else necessarily needs to do something about it, right? You know, which is part of the tri- you know the the trigger warnings thing that. And as an academic, I have been involved in some of those debates um, that I, I would not want to to caricature or parody in any way that movement that calls for trigger warnings in classes. But mm-hmm. I think. It's also the case that movements can find ways of weathering distress and not seeing every discomfort as a sign of trauma. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, about the trauma discourse. You just published this book on uh, psychiatry, politics, and PTSD. Um, So I'm really curious about how and, you know, whether or not they're different, PTSD and, and the discourse of trauma in, in movements. I've written about 
trauma more in the in the context of the recovered memory memory movement my book pillar of salt followed that movement and debates and took up multiple personality disorders satanic ritual abuse mm-hmm. these were phenomena highly associated with one another in the 90s that were that kind of dominated the mental health field throughout the 90s and vast numbers of clinicians and including people with PhDs, believed that there was a a network of Satan worshipers around the country that were secretly sexually abusing children and burying them in places so effectively that they could not, um, that they covered their tracks. Professionals believe this. Now we know satanic ritual abuse and pedophilia is an obsession of the right wing conspiracists. But in the 90s, this was a widely accepted set of ideas and conspiratorial paranoid thinking tied to the trauma therapists of that era where very educated people, by many measures, educated people believed these theories. And it was scary to challenge them. You know, so when I would do interviews, I carried out field research on how crisis centers were accepting the satanic ritual abuse conspiracy theory. And and it was like questioning the Holocaust, being a Holocaust denier. That was how uh, a lot of feminist clinicians said, how can you question this? That is that women are speaking of this and you do not question women speaking to it. And I said, well, my my routine answer was as feminists, we have enough to fear in the world from known documented threats. We don't have to make up new ones. We should we should be careful about the threats we add to fear things to fear in the world, because that's a problem that we've had to address as feminists is not being fearful of public life. And now you're inadvertently reproducing a kind of paranoia that is not helpful. And many women getting more ill, mentally ill, through a process of recovering more and more disturbing memories, um, more graphic and dramatic scenes from childhood of of torture at the fate of their parents, neighbors, pastors in the basements of churches and homes that had not been identified. I mean, it was by some, you know, you might see it as a time of group hysteria or moral panic. So my interpretation of, I was interested in why these ideas took hold, not just in the debunking of them, of which there were many in the many especially experimental psychologists saying what why are these these narratives resonating with people and one one line of analysis that i also pursue in my new book is that as we entered a period where social services were being dismantled including mental health including the social welfare state and more and more burdens were put on the individual to manage their own lives and the and the mass movement that was called second wave feminism have had faded out it took a more and more dramatic story to break through the threshold of indifference to suffering so everyday misery just everyday um distress was not enough 
to move the media or to move the the um, power brokers. In the political field, you know how the in a in a family you can have someone throw a bigger and bigger tantrum to get attention. It was the attentional like, arms race or something. It was the attentional arms race. I love it. So it, and these stories got more and more dramatic, um, and also were about legitimizing a fight for authority and voice among women clinicians in the professions and the history of silencing women and children and and it, not in any way i think there were a lot of feminists and women clinicians who jumped onto that bandwagon because it it was a moral crusade um very little self reflection attached to it but it was as much about the authority competing authorities including in the law and the mental health field as it was about how you let children and women speak and giving them voice about what's upsetting them. So I felt, and a lot of that book was showing how it was driven by crises in the mental health field in the context of neoliberal capitalism that had undermined so much of an earlier progressive community mental health movement. And I continue with that same line of analysis PTSD. PTSD is the one diagnosis from that field that has survived the various categorical purges of some of, some of those, like multiple personality disorder. And it came in through the another another route through the dissociative identity disorder, but it's been really um, sidelined. So PTSD is that scrappy survivor, <laughs> and. and it came up all the time when I was doing field research in crisis settings, um, following the military, um, in making this film, Mind Zone, Therapists Behind the Front Lines. I was able to go to, ref- to war, z- uh, war zone in Afghanistan, follow therapists, and also through the state hospital, I was interested in when clinicians invoke and use that diagnosis that it was more about the management of situations where clinicians were feeling pressure to provide something, but also um, feeling the pressure of social movements to care for people in a way that didn't stigmatize them. Because it's a deep, it's a redemptive diagnosis. And I don't know how much you want to get into that, but basically I frame it as a symptom of a crisis in the field of psychiatry and that it lost its progressive potential as it became more and more incorporated into the taxonomy of DSM and a whole institutional apparatus, including the military and VA systems, um, and became a kind of management strategy, a kind of compromise between we have to do something that, um, but it's a very narrow frame as it's used as a diagnosis for the context of what gives rise to the symptom. It depends on what's called an event schema or an index trauma mm-hmm. that rules out vast amounts of um, experience. And so I try to show how it ultimately silences people who um, even benefit in some material way or access to service through the the diagnosis itself. 
Yeah. So in its role as a sort of catch-all in this moment, you're saying it necessarily reduces the context that individuals would be able to to provide in, in, in telling their stories? Well, I think there, there, there are two aspects of the diagnosis as, as it relates to the social psychology of it that I take up in the book. One is that it, it does, as it becomes part of, you know, a, a popular lexicon of everyday use, which I don't challenge so much here. You know, I think people use it as a shorthand way of saying something happened to me, um, that has really messed me up and it, and it stays with me. I'm having trouble shaking it off and it's not my fault. It's, it's, it's a way of saying I'm, um, somebody did something to me and it's a way of making a claim as it emerges in group life. If, if you've, if, if I, you've given me PTSD, I have a, a claim to you. So in a forensic setting in the courts, it's much like where it often is used. It's, it requires the um, plaintiff to say, I was fine before this happened to me. And you have to actually establish if you're in a car accident and you have to establish in this lawsuit that you were fine and it was this incident that gave rise to my suffering. And the more you bring in a history that compromises that claim, the more you lose. So PTSD is that kind of diagnosis as a forensic category. It's like, I was fine until this war, this rape or this assault or this war screwed me up. And therefore, I have a claim on someone here to do something about it. So in that sense, it's redemptive. It's an everyday, it's a redemptive diagnosis. And allows claims to be made, which was very important in the early feminist and anti-war movements to say it's where women were also facing claims like, well, good women can't be raped. Um, if you if you go to court against a man and you have you have a past, as they called it. Um, or you're masochistically attached to your abuser, all of these questions were just dominated the court system. So PTSD was a rejection of that. Say, no, you can be totally normal um, and start to have these symptoms because of this particular event that happened to me. And same with the uh, with veterans who had been disqualified and dismissed from the military for a long time for there any kind of history, mental health history. So it, it was a corrective to much of that because it said normal people can look very mentally ill under certain conditions. But then it became something else as it became part of the institutional apparatus, the psych complex, we might say, the administration of the state as it addresses these grievances and normalizes reactions, but within a very, very narrow range. So in the, in, for example, in the Oregon State Penitentiary, where I've done interviewing, it doesn't work very well to talk about your trauma. And PTSD is seen as making a, an excuse for yourself. So among poor people, where 
poverty and exposure to the police state and chronic uh, trauma and suffering are, you know, endemic in certain communities, PTSD doesn't cover those conditions because it would open up the whole establishment to claims that it doesn't want to admit. So it's a narrow portal into claims on the system for support and care. Yeah, what a stark, what a stark example. Like I can see how it's an improvement from all of the, you know, the really deep stigma and victim blaming that you're describing. But to my mind, it's still a really stark example of the way that, you know, in order to get legal recognition or redemption, you have to make a cut in history um, for for oneself as if, you know, don't go too far in your demands, don't go too far in your claims. Yeah, and I I also in in pursuing that line of analysis, there's always a risk of of being removed from the pressures of clinicians working in crisis settings who are trying to do a good job of people who are in you know one chapter of my book is on disability claims, the pressures on people to get use PTSD as a, for a disability claim, the pressure on evaluators and I I feel like it's very important to have that tone of respect to veterans. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring that to my work and to because there there are people who build a whole have a whole career built on deconstructing diagnoses, including PTSD, um, and are too removed, as Peter Strick would say, from the the hard cold bench of the waiting room, you know. <laughs> And so I, I try to acknowledge that and the, the, you know, the pressures people are under, but see it as a system issue and not an individual failure. And that's an important aspect of critical psychology and particularly as it relates to the medical model, which is about, you know, locating disease or illness within an individual as opposed to thinking about Um, problems of pathology more systemically. Yeah. And I suppose maybe there's an element of of patience involved, you know, like if enough individuals recognize the same index trauma, which is basically, you know, the human cost of militarism and of imperialism, you know, then after after a certain amount of time, you can sort of point to that event and and notice its similarities and say, hey, look, what are the real social costs and, and benefits to this? And I think there are there are um, progressive clinicians and, and anti-war veterans groups that that have pursued that strategy that the cumulative effect of normal people suffering symptoms for long periods of time can contribute to a broader progressive social movement, including anti-war movement. I I don't think that's the case, mm-hmm. um, and so. To make my argument <laughs> that this is this is not been the the history of the diagnosis is to me a case study of how diagnoses basically fail even the ones that are that carry the mantle of the social movement fail in terms of the our interests in as critical psychologists in creating more space for acknowledging and reducing human suffering. And the way I, I pursued 
that line of analysis was looking at what are the index traumas throughout the history that have been part of trauma diagnoses. Since World War One, the most redemptive trauma diagnoses, and there were precursors to PTSD, were ones where it was an external threat. So shell shock was framed as something comes at you from the outside. And part of what was important about Freud's work after World War one, he was saying a lot of the pathology is not by threats from the enemy. It's something within the military itself. It's wanting to live up to the ideals that you've, that you've internalized and comply with the command structure that also is pushing you into situations to do what you you know to be immoral. So if you can't, if you have a paralysis of your arm, you can't pick up your, you can't move your arm, you can't pick up the gun. Mm-hmm. So he talked about shell shock as an internal conflict that was really about military hierarchy. Most of the psychiatrists and psychologists were in shell shock talked about it being an external agent. And similarly, when I was tracing the index traumas that tend to be used in the military MBA, they tend to narrowly focus on something coming at you from the enemy, you know, kind of a, another version of shell shock of something coming at you. There's very little, in fact, it's explicitly forbidden when you're in military service to address conflict within a command structure. And a lot of the struggles on are still of the type that Freud (laughs) described within a military, you know, the Abraham and Isaac story and how, you know, young men and now women are sent off to war and sacrificed to fight, you know, as um, Muhammad Ali said, fight, you know, the fight the white man's struggle. And the, for the most part, the PTSD stories that find their way in the clinical literature have been incredibly sanitized. And so that and partly for reasons that are understandable, it's very difficult if you're a psychologist or psychiatrist, psychiatrist working within the military to uh, um, allow space for grievances against the military structure. Yeah, so fascinating that, you know, I mean, <laughs> maybe to the to the lay person getting into to critical psychiatry, it would seem like the most radical possible thing that, you know, that, that it could do would be to connect you know, the individual to the, you know, to the level of, of society and broader social functioning in, in a sense that would be recognizable to popular mass movements, right? Like anti-war. But in fact, it's really this uh, kind of like a smaller social structuration where a lot of the, a lot of the struggles come from um, and that, you know, that interests are so vested in, um, in protecting and, and preserving like this command and control uh, military hierarchy. Yeah. And I think it's also, um, there has been an aim on the part of many wonderful progressive clinicians to use PTSD to depathologize reactions to war. But I also try to show how actually the main effect is the opposite that, um, and I, I look at the history of personality disorders as they're used in the military. And then many, much of the early PTSD movement 
was to re-diagnose people who had been discharged, you know, dishonorable discharge from the military under the personality disorder care uh, category. And there have been a number of successful lawsuits by veterans groups for that use of the personality disorders. Um, and that was one reason why the psychiatric uh, data looked so good during the Vietnam War was that they, the military psychiatrists tended to discharge people um, under personality disorders, and you are not eligible for um, benefits under that. And it's very, very stigmatizing. So I became interested. So what does it mean to swap them out, you know, <laughs> to bring, to reframe these veterans as suffering from PTSD? And it's better um, like the alcoholism is a d disease rather than degeneracy, but it also has certain costs and there are, um, it's still a disorder and you pay a price when as early feminists knew <laughs> anytime you complain through the lens of a disorder, there's a price to pay. Anytime you rebellion, is through a psychiatric disorder lens, um, you have to look at the trade-offs there. And so it, to me, PTSD is a containment strategy and a, a more costly one than I think um, many progressive clinicians who use this recognize. And interestingly enough, most of the critiques including ones I include in the book, of PTSD as a diagnosis come out of global, the global psychiatry uh, movements and global mental health, where clinicians see how this is used in other political and cultural contexts. So that, that was of interest to me, how, um, where the critiques come from, and they haven't been from the trauma therapy movement that's still very big in the United States. Um, or mental health, the mental health practitioners in the United States. So I think it's really worth attending to what people are seeing of the international export. PTSD is a big international export of American psychiatry to other ah. conflict or crisis zones. So other crisis zones are recognizing its value as a containment strategy, basically, and saying, hey, okay, this is kind of a way to temper the individual pathologizing, but also make sure that none of the, none of the institutional, the intricacies of how, how our, you know, um, how our institutional structures work. Yeah, well, there, I think there, there are several lines of critique. One, one is that a lot of the aid effort goes towards mental health management or treating problems as cl clinical issues when they really relate to collective suffering and collective ways of remembering the and building an account of what happened because PTSD is is partly a, tied up in the history of contested memories how you remember the sources of your suffering and so many say it the way clinicians come in and tend to privatize and hyper individualize suffering it it really dismantles collective forms of storytelling and struggling over 
you know, how do we build an account of what happened? And then it also separates people who are symptomatic from those who aren't. And, you know, there's some, um, some basis to this. I wouldn't go too far in saying it's, it's worthless to identify people who are acutely symptomatic in uh, conflict zones. But one of the critiques is that so much of the funding now from NGOs is based on bringing back to big donors trauma stories that are riveting and dramatic and um, and that rather than material supports that can make a difference in how people recover from war, you know, basic, uh, you know, things like water, food, you know, kind of helping people rebuild their communities. Yep, all of these resources going to these trauma projects um, which thrive on a very dramatic story, and often it's a virtuous, redemptive one of the you know the surviving soldier who um, who who has riveting tales, you know, about what they survived. So it's kind of clinical tourism. Yeah, it's, it's worse. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying rather than you know um, donating supplies and provisions that would actually kind of lubricate the experience and make life better for a whole you know, um, like a whole group, what's happening is that people are getting individual, receiving extra individual attention and perhaps treatment for their dramatic stories. And the, the, the U.S., uh, many people believe that the U.S. is a major contributor to foreign aid, which is absolutely not true. <laughs> it's abysmal the amount of foreign aid and all of the conditions that are tied to restricted restriction of aid, you know, Biden has, has um, overturned the Mexico, Mexico city rule called the gag rule around aid to other countries that where a, a, a clinic or an organization provides counseling, even on abortion, you know? Mm -hmm. So there you know, there's there are these shifts in patterns of aid and their restrictions, but a, an effect over recent decades through Democrats and Republicans alike is often the aid that's given often has a lot of constraints around just basic needs and other states that have been dismantled by in their in in their own public services they can provide um, and through neoliberal economic policies around the world. You have more and more failed states, states not able to provide basic services for people, the U.S. playing a big role in that. And so the dramatic story that wins hearts and minds and brings donors to tears um, of the trauma survivor is often the one that generates the most funding and, I, you know, I don't want to downplay that aspect of the individual tra trauma story as representing something of the group. And some films and novels do this very well. But it's it's been a very pernicious side of international fundraising and donor practices. And I try to draw some of that out. And the insights of people who work in global mental health in my book. Yeah, well, this has been 
incredibly fascinating. I'm so grateful for your ability to bring out all of these tensions and to show the areas where there's been progress, but also what the what the current sticking points are relating to, to PTSD and to collective memory and global international aid. We've covered quite quite a lot of ground today, right? Yeah, so this has been an amazing conversation. I'm going to be digesting this and reading your book. So thanks a lot, Dr. Hopkins. Thank you so much, uh, Emmeline, and to, for the wonderful work of, of Man in America that still carries on that, that torch and those insights that have not been extinguished yet, but hopefully will, will flourish in this new era of political possibilities. Here, here. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.